I'm Katherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. In this episode, I'm speaking with musician and songwriter Ben Grace. We talk spiritual abuse, cover a bit of the history of evangelicalism, and discuss how art has been and is a powerful healing medium. I'll link to his information in the show notes. Before we jump into the interview, I want to say a few words to the church. Yes, speaking to you, church, but not the universal church. I want to speak to the self-proclaimed healthy churches, the ones who are quick to say, I'm sorry you had a bad experience, in reference to an abuse situation in a church, but that would never happen here. I want to speak to the churches that think incidents of abuse in churches are isolated and rare. They are not. If you've seen the reports going around about some public ministry leaders covering up some pretty heinous stuff, these ministry leaders have been very influential in the evangelical movement. We cannot naively think that their deeds done in darkness had no impact on their teachings or writings, and as a result, an impact on evangelicalism. Also, take it from me, who hears and witnesses stories of abuse from churches on a daily basis, This is not isolated. Please don't think it is. If you do, you will overlook victims of abuse in your own congregation. You will not see when abusers intentionally target your congregation to use your kindness and graciousness against you. I may get a lot of hate mail for this, but I'm ready to say abuse in churches is the norm, not the exception. Healthy churches are the exception. So if you really are a healthy church, you are rare. You also are not immune. Please take a moment to ask yourself, would you know an abuser if you saw one? Would you notice if spiritual abuse was happening in your congregation? Are you aware of the survivors of abuse in your congregation? They are there. If you don't know of people in your congregation who have experienced abuse, then it's likely your church is not safe for them to talk about it because they are there, hiding in plain sight, longing to be known but fearing rejection or re-traumatization. Okay, if I haven't scared you away, I'm excited about this conversation with Ben Grace. We've been speaking to artists this season because we need a place to move toward, a vision for what the church could be. I believe artists will be instrumental in helping us get there. So, here is my conversation with Ben Grace. Oh, thanks so much for doing this. I'm excited. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Where where are you based? um, I'm in Los Angeles. Oh, nice. Yeah, so background of podcasts and everything. So I grew up in a home that was like very abusive and very spiritually abusive Mm -hmm. and a lot of stuff that happened in the name of God. And then many years later, went to seminary. God and church were not really associated. We didn't really do church, but there was God. So for some reason, there just wasn't a connection between, you know, this coming from the church. So that was good. And so I actually found like home and family inside church, outside of family, and then ended up going to seminary, have worked at a few churches, ended up here in Los Angeles, where I recently 
left a church in January that mm. had a ton of spiritual abuse. There were like 36 staff that ended up leaving because of the senior pastor and all kinds of dysfunction. And I, I know people just through seminary and around the United States. And I worked in Mexico for a year. And these stories are just like coming up so much of people who've been wounded by the church and wounded in the name of God. And, and so that's kind of where the idea for the nonprofit, which is a community and resource for people who've experienced spiritual abuse. And then the podcast is just the tagline is just the church needs to do better and just bringing up topics that have to do that the church doesn't want to talk about. A lot of yep. it has to do with abuse in the church. And then season two, which I'm hoping to start airing in January, end of January, and we're starting to record it now. I want to focus on the arts and interview artists and creatives because I feel like the art, arts is kind of treated like the runt of the family. Yeah. And <laughs> so it's so important. I believe it's very important. I think it's going to be very important in healing and bringing healing to people who've been wounded. But I also think it's going to be important in challenging the church and crafting a new culture for the church. And so that's why we're doing season two. Don't know nice. if it's going to work so far. It's been really fun just to talk about artists, arts and yep. artisty things. And I'm a, I'm a writer. And so that's my, my art thing. So it's been fun to connect with other artists and just hear about creativity it's just yep. it's awesome it's so fun yeah so tell me tell me about you and your journey your artist origin story where do I start I well my mother likes to tell the story about how when I was in the womb they would turn on the radio and I would move around and they would turn off the radio and I would stop wow um, which is a pretty you know, profound thing, I think, to know about your child before you kind of meet them. But unfortunately, that, that didn't <laughs> lead them into a huge awareness around music. And they still struggle to talk to me about my choices today to be a musician and be a creative. And that's been a, a difficult thing. A lot of that hinges around my very, very conservative Christian upbringing. So I was raised in this small sect of Christianity called the Christadelphians. They're very non-mainstream, very proud of it. They kind of Christadelphians. Yep. Okay. Which just means brothers of Christ in, okay. in Greek. Uh, it was founded uh, by a guy here in New York, actually, in the late 1800s, but really solidified as an organization by a guy from the UK who was sort of obsessed with the founder. And once the founder passed, kind of wrote all the documents, and basically within one generation, the thing was institutionalized and 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 wow. quickly strayed from this very idealistic start but there's only about 60,000 current members worldwide i think you know according to that that probably is you know 10 years out of date that statistic but very very small and i grew up in a really influential family within that framework and so i think my experience of that was different i think to other people i think other people had uh, a more mild uh, version of it, but I really struggled and and several years ago even came to an understanding of that I, th I think it was very cult like for me so over the last few years of therapy <laughs> which is which has been expensive and, and time consuming i 've made some peace with it but but realizing that there is a lot of work to be done and the work you 're doing is important because a lot of us have had that same experience so for me, the arts was always a little bit uh, through the realm of church, and then we weren 't really allowed to kind of 
consume anything outside of that. But in my teens, I'm, I'm a 90s kid and the teens, you know, I was really into grunge. Now, you know, trade CDs on the black market at school and bring them home and listen to them by night. And I would stay up late listening to alternative radio, like Triple J was our Australian alternative radio. And I would, you know, stay up till four in the morning trying to find the perfect song and, and make sure it wait till it came on and, and then press record on the tape. So I actually had that to listen back. And, and so for wow. me, it was a very obsessive kind of musical kind of awakening in my teens where it so gave this expression to something that my, my church with the hymns and the pews and the very buttoned up, very locked down, you can't express anything like, God forbid you should actually show emotion during hymns. You're supposed to just stand there and hold the hymnal. Like, don't do anything with your hands. Like, don't, <laughs> don't move your body. Just sing, sing the four part and, and kind of get through it. So... But at the same time, I kind of, I loved that as well. I loved the hymns. I loved the richness of that. I loved community singing. I loved kind of how music brought people together. It was a, it was a very forming, formative, I think, thing for me to understand that music really connects us. It's this glue that binds us together. And I think in my early teens, going to Bible camps and watching this one particular very charismatic guy nathan play around the piano and watch other people be drawn into that and sing you know there's this crazy song called matthew mulkey which they just made up on the spot it was very much one of those you know the lights came on for me i was like oh like i can be part of community i can actually be in the center of this thing it doesn't have to be like focused on me like i can be at the piano but i can be facilitating this really enjoyable experience for people so music's always been part of community for me and part of that belonging i think that i kind of struggled with in in a community that was all my family, honestly, you know, and yet I still felt that disconnection from, from this blood family and from this, this faith that I was raised in just never felt like I quite fit and never felt like I quite belonged. And music was the, the one thing that the one place I've never doubted that I belong. It's the one place where I feel most myself and where my identity is, is, is so fused. And I can go into my little uh, closet that I'm like literally, you know, speaking to you in this vocal booth that I've built and spend hours just making sounds and recording things and just get lost in the, the magic of music. So that's, that's very much my, my origin story for music. And, you know, I've been a musician for 20 years now, so it's a real gift to be able to, to make money doing what I love to do. And it's been an honor of my life to be part of many, many communities all over the world of music making. Wow. That's awesome. I heard, so I heard the two things that you love about music is just the emotion that is expressed through it. And then also the community that can Mm. be built through music and, and then with the same music kind of having the exact opposite experience in your sort of faith community of it being very emotionless and and not community oriented Mm. that's that's really that's really yeah just the the, just the two opposites with this well the, the same thing music and then there's like two opposite experiences mm. of that music so that's that just really struck me as but then it was the same thing yeah. you were able to take something that was kind of neutral and then kind of turn it into and see how beautiful it could be and drawing community together. I think that's so cool. It's funny that you say it's neutral because I think, you know, music was weaponized in, in church, you know, that you weren't allowed yeah. to, it was very controlled. You weren't allowed mm-hmm. to listen to certain forms. And I think even over here in America, the idea of CCM, this whole different sub category of, of pop music, really essentially, you know, very overproduced, very buttoned up, very tight was the same incarnation of the same thing that we've sort of weaponized music because it has to have a certain you know, few things to it in order to 
to create meaning. And to me, I think that music is, is free. Like, you know, I mean, it's like, you can't touch it. You can't taste it. You can't, you know, tie it down. You can certainly can try and notate it and put it down. You can record it and put it down, but it just, it just remains this ephemeral thing that you Mm -hmm. can't really quantify. And I think, it's so fascinating to me that the church has often sought to control music and to say, here's the acceptable yeah. forms because I'm like the very thing you're trying to do, which is use music to worship, you know, a God that you can't touch or taste or see you're using this form, which is perfect for that. You know, we don't know why certain songs, you know, give us goosebumps. We have no idea why a certain song you know, makes us cry. I was listening to, a song called White Wine in the Sun yesterday. The artist escapes me, but it's an Australian comedian, Tim Minchin. Tim Minchin, he's an Australian comedian. And this song is kind of on, on one part, like really irreverent about Christmas. It starts off with, I really like Christmas. And then goes into, you know, basically he's an atheist. So he's like, well, I don't really care about all the beliefs and all the stuff that goes along with that. And yet this time of year and the songs make me cry. Like they give me this connection. And, and I don't know why that song makes me cry so hard, you know, but the, just that the line will be drinking white wine in the sun in, in association with Christmas just has this huge trigger somewhere in me where I'm just like, right. I can't listen to it without just misting up. And yet we, we try so hard to button this thing, music thing down and control it. And I think just let it be what it is because it is such an incredible, you know, glue for community and it's such an incredible, you know, learning tool for kids that the melodies that, that float through your head years later that I wish they didn't have, but they just come up in the most amazing times. Like woke up the other day with like, uh, be careful little lies what you see because the father above is looking down and love. So be careful little lies what you see. And this little song yep. that I learned at Sunday school that I haven't thought about in 30 years. And I was like, holy moly, where did that come from? <laughs> I remember that one. I remember that one. Yep. 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 Yeah. Why do you think of all communities that the church is the community that does try to control music? What do you, what do you think about that? Or yeah, it's why do you think that is? I don't think it's only the church community, to be honest. I have a classical music background and I love classical music. I thought it was beautiful. I love, you know, learning to play on piano when I grew up. But two of my my cousins went to the the Sydney Conservatory of Music, which is basically the sort of the highest thing you can do in classical music in Australia. And it totally broke them. Like it was that same story mm. as the Whiplash movie that came out a few years ago. This mm-hmm. idea that as a teacher, you have to break someone down or break their will down because music is so hard. So we may as well do it first. And I'm like, I find that mm. so cynical that I feel like in so many ways, we, we try to kind of even make the people who make the music, we try and break them as well. Like we try and break the spirit of horses. And, and instead of just actually like giving people an education to say, just enjoy what you do. Like mm-hmm. at the core part, it is such a gift that is given to us. So I think there's, you know, my, my theories around it though, I think are kind of our need for control as human beings is a huge part of it. The church is definitely not exempt from that. I think we want to control things. I mean, I look at the narrative around COVID right now and mm-hmm. the way the church is trying to handle it here and just trying to like, you know, I, I literally five minutes before I got on this call, saw an amazing thing on Twitter where this a classic preacher is like doing his usual prayer thing. He's praying COVID, go away, go away, Satan. And then this guy's like got his guitar behind it and has put this huge like thrash metal backing to it. And it's just magic. <laughs> but this need for somehow that we can, we can really think that we're in control of something and somehow that control pleases 
a deity is, is just this disconnect that I feel mm. like we think God is perfect. Therefore we must be perfect. Therefore our worship must be perfect. Uh, and we've just moved the, we've moved the goal from what mm-hmm. it is, you know, even in high liturgical churches, we have to like say the right things. So these beautiful words in the Anglican liturgy that have been built up over hundreds of years. And then we, just read them as if they're the driest textbook ever, mm-hmm. you know, because we're trying to get it right rather than actually embody the spirit of these beautiful, beautiful words that people spend hours uh, slaving over to bring kind of beauty into, into being. So, yeah, I think there's multiple reasons, but I think the need for control is a huge one. Yeah. I, yeah, I just, I see a lot of fear behind that control. And when you said, Need, the need to get it right and that can be in any community it doesn't have to just be in the church like a worship psalm and has to follow this format and has to be done in this particular way and say these certain things and i just feel like that's the exact opposite of what god wants and in inviting people to himself as not approaching in fear like that's the exact yep. opposite so how does or how have you seen a faith show up in creation creativity and you're a song writer you write songs mm. too right how does faith expressed in your your art form well i think that's changed over you know over the decades as i've made music and, and interacted with music but i think i've always been so cognizant of the fact that at the, the center of the form that i you know hold as my main practice so songwriting is sort of lyrics there's two things lyrics and melody but the center of those lyrics for decades and for centuries arguably people have been taking sacred texts and placing them into songs into tunes i mean a lot of our hymn tradition comes from literally songs that we sang in in, in bars that then kind of hymn writers came along stole the tune and and put theology on top of it that's a great like, you know, yeah that's awesome that's yeah. <laughs> so, so I think, you know, there's something about that. I mean, in, in, in the biblical text itself, you know, Paul in one of his letters says, you know, as one of the poets says, and then goes on to quote, quote a piece from a piece of poetry. And so we've, we've always done this where we've kind of taken language and tried to wrap around our experience of the world, our experience of the divine, our experience of faith. And I'm no different to that as a songwriter, you know, I kind of, find a lot of i mean there's so much gorgeous language you know in in the kind of the biblical text and ways to find to lift something from there and to kind of find a new way to say it or to kind of remind us you know this one song called an eye for an eye that is about gun violence in america and and immediately when i was responding to one of these events and wrote it for in this particular moment the, the words, which I think are attributed to Gandhi, you know, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind, kind of came up and that was part of the chorus. But for me, well, I also wanted to invoke, you know, the, the words of Isaiah, where it says, we'll turn our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks and, and, and lift that and, and then also kind of appropriate and say, well, we'll melt down all the guns, you know, because that's the same thing. Like that's the, that's the, the modern day equivalent of, of that thought and of that kind of, that, that kind of idea. So I think very much I kind of rest on, on the tradition of people like Dylan and other great songwriters who've kind of taken the biblical text and inserted it into their, their practice and their art as a way to continue this conversation we've been having for millennia about what is humanity and what is divinity and how do we interact. And I think music has a huge part of that. We've, you know, doesn't, isn't, the church does not have uh, a monopoly on spirituality 
you know, music, musicians and poets and writers have always been plumbing the depths of these texts and asking mm-hmm. questions. I think that to me is, is the core part of it. what is an artist? An artist at the end of the day is someone who just asks a question, mm. you know, and who says, well, what if the world is this way? What if it's not, you know, mm-hmm. that can help us imagine a future like Lily John Lennon, imagine, imagine a future that is not present yet. And mm-hmm. we're always as a species marching towards a future that is ill-defined and we can't quite get a hold of it. And we have no idea what's coming. And, and that as the role of the artist to show up and to try and kind of give us some focus on that or let our imagination run into, into new places, into more hopeful places, into, places where we need to be challenged and and to kind of change our minds on some things and that's just the same as the old testament prophets it's no different it's the same tradition so that's that's kind of how i see it i think in the world we live in right now and today there's a huge need for poets and prophets to rise up and speak out against all sorts of things i mean just this year in in 2020 with the, the death of george floyd and and marching marking the second wave of sort of the black lives matter movement where i think a lot of people you know kind of for whatever reason, just kind of had their heads in the sand about that. But, you know, mm-hmm. that was 2013, 2014, when that movement sort of really kicked off. And it's not even to say that that hasn't, you know, that was the first time someone said Black Lives Matter. It's been a problem for centuries here in this country, the oppression of black and brown people. But we're seeing this need, I think, for songs and hymns and, and writings uh, and, and art that just really lifts up and highlights and illuminates this huge systemic racism problem we have in this country. And so I think there's ways that, that artists can you know, question that, can hopefully show us uh, and reflect back to us our white privilege, can, can speak and remind us that you know, beyond the headlines and beyond the scapegoating that happens when, when another black or brown body falls, that that's just a human life you know, at the mm-hmm. end of the day that got lost. And to remind us that that's, that's a tragedy and, and to bring us back to grief to allow us to kind of sort our feelings and to kind of properly put them in the right places so we can name the things correctly rather than just continue on down the same path, bumbling along. I love that you said that artists ask a question and they paint a picture of what the future could be. Mm. And I, I would say that is so true of, of all artists slash creatives that I know. They have this like weird thing in their brain that allows them to sort of see the world differently. And I was talking with a songwriter a couple of weeks ago and we were just talking about how artists both reflect truth and they also proclaim truth. But then there's this whole other element of, like you said, just painting this picture of where we could go and where we could be. And I, I mean, I, absolutely 100% agree with you. And one of the reasons why I'm doing this series is I'm just like, I want to give artists a voice to be able to say, yeah, this is what I'm doing. Like, this is, this is how I'm, this is how I'm proclaiming this truth. This is how I'm painting this picture of what life could be like. And especially for the church, it's just, just, yeah, just saying like this, there's more than this. There's more than this, this, dryness, this religiosity, this austerity, this unfriendliness and unkindness. Like there, there's more for you than this. And I, yeah, I feel like, oh, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. That um, reminds me of, you know, the, the Valley of Dry Bones kind of prophecy, yeah. which is, is Lily, you know, a prophet setting up in front of his people and kind of saying, 
y'all feel like, you know, you've died and the vultures have picked you over and you're out in the desert. Like, it's not a pretty image. You know, it's not going to make you popular. <laughs> it's not going to be like, well, thanks, Joe. We really appreciate that, buddy. You know, it's, but it, but it's a kind of a call to remind us, you know, who we are and what, what we've become. And uh, I think, you know, I mean, I've been here nine years in the States and, and, you know, what I saw when I arrived here in the evangelical church, you know, alarmed me that what's actually happened over the last four years is just, it's brutal, like absolutely mm. brutal. And I think someone, you know, I think there's lots of people that have been starting to speak up and say, wow, like the faith that you raised me in just, I, I can't, I don't recognize that with what's mm -hmm. actually happening right now. And a, a younger generation who was saying, you taught us to try and love people. And what's, what's this? This doesn't feel loving. This is mm -hmm. anything but that. This is bigoted and this is mm -hmm. horrific and this is violent. So so there's a lot of work to be done, I think, for us to kind of help people to wake up to the reality of what's around us. Just out of curiosity, what were some things that you saw? What were, like you said, just like in the past four years and then alarming once you got here? Yeah. To, yeah. I'm just curious what, what were the things that stood out? I think very quickly. So I landed here in end of 2011 and within three months, I'd got a job to plant a brand new church plant in Brooklyn and just within that church which you know was full of lovely people but it was still sort of a midwestern evangelical style church to me it was just very obvious that every conversation came back to some sort of money you know mm. that that kind of commercialism and capitalism and the church were just in bed together and when I came here I you know I, I did have a you know I love David Crowder and I was into Rob Bell and you know I was starting to really listen you know for me that was a real difference from my upbringing in the Christadelphian faith, but it was, was only a handful of months before I was like, oh, there's something underneath all this that I, that I don't actually like, like, or agree with. There's something else here. And that's, that's just one aspect of it. I feel like the, the control, the, the, the way I've seen and, and researched the, the way the religious right has shaped the narrative, the obsession with, you know, single issue things like abortion, mm -hmm. uh, which is a hugely nuanced conversation that the church mm -hmm. could do some really good if we leaned into it properly, because I do believe that all life is sacred, but I'm, I'm not going to agree to the terms <laughs> that people right. you know, make that debate on. But yeah, there's just a lot of stuff there that has been really alarming. And then I think obviously Trump is just the, the absolute fruit of all of that. <laughs> it's just, I mean, he's a narcissist the way a lot of the preachers have been narcissists. Mm -hmm. You know, he kind of, he just, tells the narrative and, and, and if people say he speaks the truth, I'm like, no, he doesn't. He just makes mm -hmm. stuff up. Like he's lying all the time to you and he's an ultimate salesman. And I think that's kind of the, the evangelical church model. Is he's a showman. Yeah it's, yeah. it's a sales pitch. It's basically, you know, I got obsessed with liturgy a few years ago. And what I realized was what we took out was confession and absolution, which is we confess that we don't have it all together, but then we hear the assurance that God is loving and has already forgiven us. The evangelicals took that out of the liturgy and what they put instead was the sinner's prayer, which is designed mm. to put you into crisis so that we actually kind of basically come forward ah. and make a contribution. It was a traveling sales fear, fear motivation. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so instead of telling people every Sunday, okay, sure, you're not perfect and you do have things to work on, but you're still loved. We have continued to say over and over again, you're crappy. You don't deserve what you are. You're worthless. And that's mm -hmm. just not the truth. That's just, that's a, that's a cheap sales pitch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was in contrast to what you had experienced that was different here. And you feel like it was, it's a pretty Americanized thing. Yeah. I think, I think the evangelical church is pretty unique. You know, it was built out of tent revivals, mm -hmm. it was built out of sort of going from town to town. It was very detached, I think, from sort of a community life and embodied 
faith that kind of sat in the, in the middle of the community. Not saying that there weren't that. Obviously, there's still mainline churches here, and they were still doing that local ministry. But there's something I think that's even you know even like TV, TV evangelism. You know, like mm. who are those people accountable to? Like who are they serving? You know, it feels like just an odd idea to me. It feels like we're always trying to sell people something. Actually, yeah. I think you know I realized it was. I guess it was a few years into me really sort of talking about my upbringing and, and my current partner, Karen found this um, thing online, which really opened my eyes because it's called it a high demand community. Mm-hmm. And I finally was like, okay, so maybe this thing wasn't a cult, but this idea of high demand, like it's so much demand on your time and your attention and your affection and your money and your resources. And I'm like, that's actually the thing right there. I think yes. is, that, that is this, is this ultimate. And that's what I think, you know, narcissism does. It's like, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I can't wait to have a president who I don't have to think about every day. You know? <laughs> Because I don't think it, that the presidency really should affect us on that on that huge right. level, and yet it absolutely consumed us. You know that mm-hmm. the week following the election, it was just like it felt like lost time. You just sitting there, kind of waiting for these, mm-hmm. these count these results. It was, mm-hmm. you know, and our, and our lives are more beautiful and sacred and more important than than that to fixate on this one thing, whether it be church or president or, mm-hmm. or another person. You know that we're losing a lot of time and energy from really mm-hmm. kind of doing the work ourselves. Yeah. No, and I think I like the term high demand community and is a little more palpable than calling some of these organizations that have cult-like behaviors Mm. where they have like the main leader that, you know, rallies everyone. Yeah, I think I like, I think high demand community, that's a good, a good term. I think that that's a little more stomachable. I don't know that people would always want to refer to their communities as, as cults. Um, and they don't quite, I don't, I don't think they all fall into all the categories. There's not a whole lot of like, there's isolation, I think by, by default, but not intentional isolation, I think as there can be in, in cults. Yeah. yeah. So where have you experienced art or seen art as healing? I mean, everywhere quite frankly you know that's very generic but i think you know for me obviously my my medium has been music and ever since i started making and uh, music and recording it and distributing it i've had the privilege of hearing back from people all over the place and people who've reflected back to me wow this this thing right here i needed to hear this recently i released a song um, called write the fear a lullaby and i wrote it with my new partner karen when we were dating so i was in colorado she was in san diego and we're dating long distance and both of us being writers, we were going backwards and forwards, just trying to talk about uh, the, the anxiety and the fear that comes being, with being in a new relationship and what it means to you know, both of us that had come out of marriages that had fallen apart and sort of the walking into this brand new thing and, and fearing all of the things that could go wrong and trying to wrestle with all those things. And we wrote the song instead so write the fear of lullaby and i wasn't going to release it ahead of my album but then i shared the early mix with a few of my inner circle uh, friends and they said this song is so perfect for the mm. covid right now because so many of us are experiencing fear and anxiety and so many of us are, are kind of isolated and and lonely and don't know what to do with ourselves so release that song early i had one of my my friends who had kind of followed my music for quite some time heard the song and wrote to me and she kind of said, I want to say anonymous, even though I shared this on social media, but she said, you know, she'd always had the same story as me. She'd her marriage had fallen apart a few years ago and she'd been rebuilding all of that. And in, with her new partner, she said, 
I heard this song. I rushed home. I put it on the stereo and I said to him, isn't this every conversation we've ever had about this thing? Like, and wow. she's like, this song is so healing to hear it because it actually like reflects back the same process of wrestling that I've been going through. And it reflects back the same like struggle and all, all of the kind of the nuance and the complexity of it. And so I think I've been really privileged to, to hear that and to have people share those things with me. It feels like a huge, huge thing that people would trust me with with those things and in my own life i think it's it's been super super healing uh, and i think for quite some time during my 20s you know music was a way that i was trying to build this career and i kind of had this sort of element to it of of challenge and, and of, of competition and of sort of trying to get success but you know in my kind of late 30s in the last few years it's kind of my life took this very different trajectory and as things sort of started falling apart and started deconstructing certain parts of myself and my faith Mm-hmm. The one thing that was true, which was this this beautiful ability I had to express something and to tell my story and the truth of that has been just the most incredibly uh, healing thing for me. And I think that what I want to do with my music is is said about that people, don't be scared of your story, you know? Mm. Like we, I think we so much kind of want to align our story with this kind of larger story. We want to try and somehow like, you know, give a testimony you know, at church that kind mm. of sounds, you know, like the same thing that someone said last week. And, and maybe our story feels, you know, too, too kind of crazy or dark or scary or, you know, too shameful. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think the thing is, you know, we've got to trust, you know, the biblical text says that the things will come out to the light and, and things will be kind of cleansed by the light. And then when we actually become honest and truthful and tell the dark stories and experiences, we free ourselves from the fear that we're unlovable and from yeah. the, the, the fear and shame that we hold there. And we allow other people the permission to just have their stories as well and mm-hmm. to, to not be afraid of all the, the dark and shameful parts. Like, you know, so that's, that's been kind of my experience is, you know, it's not as if that's going one way. I have tons of friends around me who artists and songwriters have always built community. And, and when someone brings you a song that says something true about the universe and you're just like, Oh, that I needed to hear that. That totally is healing. So that's, that's definitely been a big part of my journey is, is kind of creativity writing the wounds back together and that's why the, the album i just released is called as if words could heal the wounds because that is is has been my experience and is also just part of the the thing i have to wrestle with every day is is the the belief that that this will be a continuing process that this healing will go on and that the parts of me that i still struggle with and the parts that i'm still afraid to kind of uh, reveal and to release will be what will be things that in the future I'll find peace with and I'll actually find, yeah. you know, find kind of places that kind of give me rest and peace. That's awesome. I have nothing further to add to that. Where can people find your music? So I'm at Ben Grace Music everywhere on socials, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that kind of stuff. And bengracemusic.com will also kind of get you there. And I'm pretty sure if you can get to all those things, you'll probably find Story and Tune. Their Story and Tune is just at Story and Tune everywhere and facebook.com slash Story and Tune. And yeah, come and find me. Come and come and talk to me about all the things. I love these conversations uh, with people about yeah. art and faith and spirituality and healing. That's my kind of favorite things to do. So yes. <laughs> come along and join the party. Me too. Me too. Yeah. I've got a sudden vision. I was like, we need to, we need to do a concert. Mm-hmm. like some kind of like i don't know 
with with the artists that are kind of that are kind of doing that same thing of just like that these songs are not working and I want to write real stuff like about real real life of yeah. Uh, yeah we need to we need to do that when COVID's when COVID's gone yeah yeah <laughs> Or just organize an epic live stream. You know? Oh, that would be and, really cool. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of funny because I think all of us are so busy. I mean, I think, you know, once you do sort of come out of that world and, you know, for many of us, I think that, you know, we sort of gave up incomes <laughs> to sort of step away from right. things. And that's, that's really tricky. And so we're mm-hmm. always kind of busy, I think, trying to hustle kind of to to create something. But I think we should also like take time to, you know, for those of us who are here and doing this work, to take time to be together and celebrate that. and Absolutely. The, the wins, because I feel like definitely... 2020 i think has sped a lot of people's deconstruction along you know because all of a sudden, i think so yeah all of a sudden the, the pressure to not have to go to church because yeah. it's not there anymore and you can kind of you know you can watch a lot of bunch of things online and a lot of great communities out there i'm part of one called sojourn grace collective here in san diego that is a community full of people who've been really really hurt by the church and ex-worship leaders or pastors who you know, let go of for either their sexuality or for their stance, you know, for people with their sexuality. And uh, it's a beautiful community of people who are just really still trying to do the thing, you know. Right. <laughs> trying to work through their wounds and their triggers and then do it. So, oh, yeah. that's so great. That's such a cool story. Yep. Wow. Well, this has been so great. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having yeah. me. Have a wonderful, wonderful afternoon. Same to you. Appreciate All right. it. Talk to you See soon. You Bye. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review, and don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Catherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time.